Hello, folks. Connor Lokar, Senior Forecaster here at ITR Economics, and I'm following up uh, on my latest ITR webinar covering construction market trends for 2022. Uh, and we are here to circle back to the questions that we did not have time for uh, at the end of the webinar. So we're going to go ahead and jump right in. So our first question, what does the NAHB Housing Market Index actually measure? One of my favorites. So what this is, it's basically a survey in asking respondents, which are home builders, to rate market conditions for the sale of new homes, both now and in the next six months, as well as the traffic of prospective buyers of new homes. So it's, it's a diffusion index where they take these surveys and it's basically the calculation and they have some you know, specific weightings on how they, you know, as far as you know, low, very low market conditions, high, very high. Ultimately, they um, turn that into an index with a rating between or a valuation between zero and 100. So what we do a little bit differently at ITR is we then take that uh, monthly reading and we generate rates of change off that too. Because what people struggle with with these indicators oftentimes is, okay, well, if it's 61.2 for that month of September, what does that mean to my business exactly? Is that good or is that bad? Does that mean things get better or worse for me in X number of months? So ITR with our rate of change methodology, we evaluate it on a cyclical basis, get a better feel for that rolling momentum trend uh, and uh, to get that lead time that we get for single family housing uh, out of it ultimately right near seven months there. So that's what it measures and you can get that uh, definition online too from the National Association of Home Builders. So second question, what if scenario, what factors do you think might cause a bubble burst scenario for housing? What are your warning signs? Uh, I think it's a fair question. I mean, when you look at market behavior out there, how expensive homes are right now, how they're going over list, folks are waiving inspections, uh, it certainly seems concerning out there, but the unfortunate reality is, is it's justified right now as far as demand's concerned relative to prevailing supply levels. So, so my warning signs are what, what it's going to take to break this market uh, is going to be either a major breakdown in income levels uh, on the part of our prospective home buyers uh, or a big pinch on the mortgage rate side of things that, that makes the home price increases uh, that we've seen so far untenable from a buyer pool's perspective. So my warning signs would be uh, you know, mortgage rates uh, as we look at interest rates, which have crept up here in the last week or so. Nothing we're super worried about at this point in time, but I think mortgage rates that, as I showed in the webinar, gives us about an 11 month lead time. So it, it gives us a pretty long heads up for if we start to see that spiking trend, that'll let us know, uh, you know three, four quarters in advance if things are gonna turn sour on us. What, where I would look after that would be inventory levels uh, because if, you know, if we do see some of that waning buyer demand, but inventory levels are so tight, you know, we may not see enough slack for it really to be a truly bursting bubble, maybe just more anemic market conditions. But if I were to see that spike in interest rates ultimately drive that corresponding declines in new and existing home sales to the point that we actually did see some meaningful lift uh, in actual home inventories, which we have not seen uh, since uh, the Great Recession, then, then I would be concerned. So those would be my couple warning signs. And you could throw on there, and something I've been keeping an eye on lately is, is earnings, uh, inflation adjusted earnings, as we think about some of the inflation pressure out there, uh, earnings relative to inflation, because we are seeing some headwinds there, which could uh, sap some momentum out of the market. I don't know if it could really drive a bursting bubble, but uh, those are a few that uh, we're keeping an eye on. Um, next question, any commentary on multifamily volatility? Your chart shows some wild swings. Part of that is uh, you know, just the nature of that data set. So multifamily on a starts basis you know, for units, it's only about, uh, you know, half the size of the single family market, actually a little bit less than that, maybe closer between a half and a third 
Uh, so just as a smaller data set, you're going to see more volatility there. Uh, you also get a little bit more speculative buying uh, or excuse me, building activity there, which I think feeds into some of those fits and starts in building trends. Uh, we've also seen that sometimes policy factors uh, make an impact there. So uh, something I remember, I think almost six years ago now, I think it was either fall of 2014, might've been 2015, uh, there was uh, some tax implications that were going into effect that drove a surge in permit issuance on the multifamily side, uh, preempting uh, those going effective. Uh, I believe that was in New York state. So, so it's, I think all those factors you know, leads to you know, just a little bit more uh, noise within that data set where single family starts you know, with uh, just how many hundreds of thousands of units that we see there you know, in, you know, approaching a million, uh, you know, that's, it's just a, a quieter data set um, and cyclically behaves uh, a little bit more. And you don't have the mortgage rate influence, um, you know, on the multifamily side, whereas the single family side, we see those cycles are, are much cleaner than we see on the multifamily side. Uh, um, next one, uh, please count on hospitality, please. What is driving the decline? Well, I think the decline is, is, is pretty logical here uh, in 2021, where and, you know, starting last year's you know, just absolutely devastated travel numbers. You know, as we think about international travel, business-based travel, uh, as we look at domestic, uh, you know, TSA throughput, uh, you know, passenger throughput numbers, and they're still down from pre-COVID levels. So folks just aren't traveling around to hotels like they were before. A lot of folks, you know, whether it's for leisure travel, a lot of folks doing vacations closer to home in the last year and a half, not maybe not willing to get on planes. We know business travel conferences, ITR very familiar with that because we present at a lot of conferences. Uh, so, you know, a, you know, a lot of these hospitalities, you know, they're on a, on a, you know, either building new uh, facilities or remodeling, uh, you know, the existing rooms or conference areas or, or lobbies of their existing hotels. So they burnt a lot of that cash and capital just surviving COVID-19. Uh, and so that's led to a corresponding pullback in uh, actual dollar spend, you know, on their facilities, either from a renovation or new capital project standpoint. So, I think it all makes sense, but I think the good news is that we are seeing hospitality starts are in recovery. They're starting to pick up a bit, so we're seeing some signs of life there. Uh, our expectation is that we're going to see that get gradually better in 2022, 2023, and, and really, you know, there's some potential for some serious growth post 2022 because there's uh, they're going to be dealing with a couple year backlog of renovations that they did not do that they're eventually going to have to catch up on to stay competitive and keep their hotels attractive, uh, you know, to prospective you know business and leisure travelers. So. Uh, number, uh, next one is the self storage boom because multifamily vacancy rates are so low. Comma, yes, this is a joke. Uh, so I, I think the joke there is that you know folks are just living in self storage um, because there's nowhere else to go. Uh, but you, I, there might be something to that. Maybe not so much on the multifamily side, but because uh, you know folks are maybe selling their homes, putting their stuff into storage, and, and maybe trying to rent and, and trying to really get cute with timing this market where they're selling at a peak and hoping they can rent for a year or two. Um, and maybe try to buy back in as the market cools off, which in my opinion, that's a lot of effort. And I think you're probably overthinking it at that point, but not to say there's not something there. Uh, uh, next, what factors play into the projected deceleration of steel prices? So it's really demand. Uh, you know, we're seeing steel production is approaching pre-COVID levels. Domestic uh, raw steel production is very close to pre-COVID 2019 levels. So we're seeing the supply side is actively accelerating and catching up. We're also seeing that Demand side pressures are going to be decelerating next year. We're already seeing weakening in the rates of change on the industrial side. So we think that structural steel demand on the on the construction side of things is going to stay robust and actually improve 
as we move forward. But as we think about industrial market steel demand from machine builders from other areas, we are going to see some lessening of demand pressure there. Not to mention, we're starting to see a strengthening dollar right now. We're starting to see pickup in imports of steel. So we're in, some structural factors are in line there to see um, a correction uh, and, and some normalization in that pricing trend for steel that has obviously been quite robust so far here in 2021. Uh, next question. Uh, so if we look at new single family at plus 4.3% from a start standpoint, new commercial at plus 6.9%, what is the commercial repair and remodel growth rate? So we actually don't carry a forecast for that right now. That's not to say that we can't or would not, but that is just not something that we are currently forecasting. Uh, given that it is down and recovering, one would presume that we're gonna see a positive year on growth rate for 2022 as the renovation market starts to come back and we start to see some of that spend come up, but that's I'm afraid, unfortunately, that's as specific as I can get, not because I don't want to share that with you, it's that uh, that is a series that we are not currently carrying a forecast for uh, internally. But if that's something you're interested in, and you think it's very relevant to your business, we could certainly forecast that for you. Uh, next, uh, freight capacity has been very tight in 2021. Yes, it has. Uh, do you see that easing in 2022? Yes, we do, to a certain extent. Uh, I, I try to be careful answering this because 2022, as we see some of those cooling demand pressures, we're looking for improvement relative to 2021, which obviously we know has been historically uh, challenging from just a total supply chain and freight logistics standpoint. Uh, so we're looking for that easing next year relative to 2021, but not to say that things, it, it goes all the way back to 2019 or early 2020 pre-COVID levels of, you know, whether it's freight rates, either that's from, you know, either from you know, long haul trucking or rail freight or ocean freight, we're not gonna get all the way back and improve next year, but things should get uh, to pre-COVID levels, but things should get better and easier as the year wears on. I would look for that easing to be more noticeable in the second half of next year. We're still carrying a lot of, uh, carrying over a lot of demand and congestion into 2022. So ra radical improvement early next year, uh, you know, in the first quarter, uh, would be wishful thinking uh, in our estimation. And finally, can you comment on projections for manufacturing and warehousing labor shortage timing for relief? So this is interesting because the, the labor side, I don't know if we're gonna see a ton of relief. I mean, we're seeing manufacturing job openings north of half a million, uh, I think actually close to 700,000 right now, construction or excuse me, warehousing, truck transportation job openings, I believe are north of 330,000 right now off the top of my head. Uh, and you know, what we should see is, is we're seeing very gradual improvements in labor force participation as we see kids going back to school here uh, this fall. And we're, as we get further removed from those elevated unemployment benefits, we're going to gradually see some improving labor force participation. But at the same time, those folks are going to get hired up uh, right away. So in terms of relief, I don't know if we're going to see a lot of relief. I think it's going to continue to remain challenging for us uh, from a hiring standpoint. Uh, you know, as we think about some of these inflation pressures and, and some weakening savings and DPI levels, that could be an incentivizing driving factor to get some of these millions of folks that are on the sidelines back into the labor force. But I think any trickle in increase in participation is going to be pretty quickly offset by just hiring of those folks when we think about total job openings north of 10 million in the U.S. right now. So, so right now there's far more demand for labor than there is uh, folks coming back into the labor force, even if that happens on a gradual basis. So I don't, I don't know how much uh, tangible relief we're really going to feel. We'll see some statistical improvement in aggregate employment levels, but 
I don't think that that necessarily means we're going to see relief from labor market slack that you'll actually feel. So, uh, so that wraps it up, folks. Uh, getting to those questions, a lot of great questions in there, and, and I thank you, folks, for those of you that have rejoined us here on the ITR website to check in for this trends talk, uh, to to follow up on these questions. I thank you for doing that, and we'll see you on the next one.